The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. Well, it has finally arrived. What am I talking about? No, it's not the school season. That's been around for a few weeks now. It's the new tax law. Yes, it has finally arrived. The Democrats have submitted their proposal in the House of Representatives for the tax plan that they want the Congress to approve and the president to sign. Now, normally here on this radio show, I mean, you know me, you've been listening for a long time and you know I never like to talk about pending legislation. And there are two reasons why over the years people have often asked me, Rick, what do you think about the so-and-so bill? There are reasons, two of them, very simply, why I never like to talk about it. Number one, it's highly unlikely that the bill will be passed. There are hundreds and hundreds of pieces of legislation introduced before Congress on an annual basis. A tiny little sliver of them ever get into law itself. So why bother talking about something that is never going to end up happening? Second, if we do talk about proposed tax legislation, you'll just suddenly get yourself all confused comparing it to the current tax law. And I don't want to confuse you at all. So we generally wait until the laws are signed before we begin talking about them. But I need to digress. I need to deviate from my traditional normal approach because this new piece of legislation, although it has the same issues as all other proposed legislation has, there are two elements here that make it worthy of conversation. And that's why I want to talk about it with you. I'm going to go into some of the details of the new proposals. I'll couch that properly. But I want to give you this info before I launch into those details. Number one, as is always the case, the initial bill that is offered in Congress is never the final legislation that the president signs, because that's part of the political process. There's going to be debate. There's going to be back and forth. There's going to be negotiation, the so-called horse trading in the back smoke-filled room where they're doing their deals with elbowing and jockeying around and all that kind of good stuff. That is yet to come. The one thing we generally can rely on, and again, this may prove not to be true, but I am pretty confident it will be, the current proposal is as bad as it's going to get. When I say bad, I mean expensive. In other words, whatever they're offering here is the most you can expect it to offer. That's important. That gives us some guide rails to have as an idea for our planning purposes into 2022. Second, the big open question that many people have had is when is the law going to become effective? 
You know, normally when Congress passes a law, they make it effective the, the following January 1. They give people, you know, a little bit of time to get used to the fact that the law will take effect. If it's a big deal law, they say it's going to take effect in five years or 10 years, but they rarely say that the law will be effective as of the date of signing. But when it comes to tax law, Congress often takes a different tone. Congress often says when they're dealing with tax law that the law will take effect as of the date the legislation is proposed, which means that the legislation would be effective not merely when the president signs it in the next couple of months, but it would be effective way back in the month of September. In fact, sometimes they even go backwards beyond that, and they retroactively impose the law on the past few years. The Democratic proposal that was submitted to the House this week sets the law to become effective January 1st. That is very clarifying. It eliminates a lot of the fear that a lot of people had that they needed to make changes to their investment strategy or other aspects of their personal finances before Congress passed the law. It appears from the way the legislation has been proposed, we don't have to worry about that. We can take a deep sigh, a big deep breath, sigh of relief, knowing that we don't have to act unnecessarily rapidly. We can wait and see how the legislation unfolds during the debate in the House and then ultimately in the Senate. So with those two pieces of information in mind, let me share with you what the proposal is. Here's another good element to this. The extreme proposals that were offered by Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and other far-left members of the Democratic Party, those extreme proposals were not included in this bill. There will be no wealth tax where you are taxed on the value of your assets. There's also no tax on the billionaires. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, they are not being targeted for taxes. In other words, the House Democrats did not go after the uber super rich. Instead, they're going after the merely rich, which, by the way, may well include you in their definition, and I'll talk about that in a moment. There's also no elimination of carried interest. You don't even know what that is. Carried interest is a tax deferral available to, you guessed it, the super rich. These are the folks who invest in private equity and hedge funds and venture capital. Private investments not available to ordinary consumers. They typically require hundreds of thousands of dollars, often millions of dollars to invest. High-risk ventures in many cases that provide through a loophole in the law the ability to defer their taxes on their profits until they sell those investments 10 years from now. You, as a poor little schmo buying mutual funds, have to pay taxes every year on your mutual fund profits. Not true for these folks in these private equity deals. They instead get to defer their taxes for as long as they hold that investment. There was a lot of talk that Congress was going to eliminate the carried interest provision. Guess what? The proposal didn't do it. I have to wonder what kind of backdoor conversations have already taken place that have caused 
the Democrats to not go after the super billionaires and those that are investing in the kinds of deals they like to invest in. Instead, the tax increases are going after the merely rich. The new top tax rate, according to the legislation, will be 39.6%. Now, that isn't a huge increase over the current level, but it applies to people who are only earning in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, not the multi-millions of dollars. There's going to be a top corporate rate, according to the legislation, of 26.5%. And yes, those earning over $5 million, they'll pay a 3% surcharge. So yeah, people who are making an awful lot of money, $5 million or more a year, will pay more. Also, the capital gains tax is going to increase from 20% to 25%. That is a substantial increase, and that's going to apply to everybody with capital gains, which means you and me, because we get capital gains from our stocks and our bonds and our real estate and our mutual funds and our ETFs, etc. Now, here's the interesting element about this. The tax rate on the first $400,000 of income will be 18%. The tax rate on income between 400000 and $5 million will be 21%. Now, what we have to understand about this is that if you are earning $200,000 or more, your taxes are going to go up, but only by a little bit. If you're earning a million dollars or more, your taxes are going to go up over 10%. By 2027, remember I said sometimes they pass a law and they don't implement it right away, they delay the implementation? That's the case here. The taxes are going to go up, not just immediately on January 1, they're going to continue to go up over the next six years. By 2027, Everybody who's earning $30,000 or more are going to be paying higher taxes. You remember when President Biden said on the campaign trail, nobody earning under $400,000 would be suffering a tax increase? Well, <clears throat> it appears, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> it appears that isn't going to prove true. By the way, Higher income earners are going to have a lower array of tax deductions they can take. There are going to be higher taxes on tobacco. And salt is unchanged. The deduction you get for your state and local taxes, there's a $10,000 limit. You can't deduct more than that, even though you're probably paying more than that in property taxes and state income taxes. That is not changed, even though there were campaign promises to do so. So this is looking like the most that the tax increases are going to be. By the time we get to the negotiation, it may prove even less than this. I'll keep you posted here on this show in the weeks and months to come. What we need to recognize for the moment is that there does not appear to be any need for you to engage in extensive changes in your investment strategy as a result of what the tax law is going to look like on January 1. You're going to want to stay in touch with your financial and tax advisors to make sure you are doing what you need to be doing at the time you need to be doing it. I'm Rick Edelman. Stay tuned for more here on the show, including my guest in our next segment, Jeff Rosenberger. He's going to be talking about a key section of the new tax law proposal that is going to help Americans save and that Congress is going to make this happen accidentally. We'll tell you about it when we return here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. 
the author of the 2008 Personal Finance Book of the Year, The Lies About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. We were just talking about the new tax legislation being proposed on Capitol Hill by Democrats in the House of Representatives. This bill is gaining a lot of momentum, and there is legislation, the Build Back Better Act, which is all designed to raise what Congress hopes is $3.5 trillion of new funding to pay for all sorts of things uh, that the country needs. There's something embedded inside the bill that ordinarily, if it were standalone legislation, if it were getting a lot of attention and spotlight all by itself, it might not get passed into law. But because it's being embedded in this broad piece of legislation that everybody else is paying other attention to, this just might go through and it might just help an awful lot of Americans save for retirement who are struggling to do so. To help us talk about all this is Jeff Rosenberger. He's a Ph.D. in Management Science and Engineering from Stanford and Chief Operating Officer of Guideline. Guideline is a retirement platform for small businesses. Jeff, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Thanks, Rick. Really great to be here. So there is a retirement savings gap in America. Let's start there with what the problem is, how it arrived and what this potential legislative solution is designed to help attack. So talk about, first off, the retirement savings gap here in America. Yeah, some of the data is a little hard to pin down, and it really depends on some of your source and and timing. But what you see is there are over 5 million employers in the U.S. that that don't offer a 401k plan uh, to their employees today. Um, These are mostly firms with 100 or fewer employees. So it's really pretty focused on small businesses where the gap is. Um, and by different measures and different data sources, anywhere from one-third to one-half of the private sector workforce lacks access, depending on the, you know, on the source. So the size of the gap is, is pretty darn big. It's a really big problem that, that needs to be attacked. And so if you've got a third of the country working for employers who don't offer a 401k, then they don't even have the opportunity to save for retirement at work. Uh, and we know that if you do have a 401k, you're far more likely to save for retirement than if you don't have a 401k. And that's really the crux of the issue. Lower income workers, people working for small employers, don't have the same ability to save for retirement as those working for big companies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's some data even from uh, AARP that suggests exactly what you said, which is, you know, you're 15 times more likely to save for retirement if you have a plan offered through your employer. So it's really important to get, you know, that offering and, and program through the employer. And you know, it's just a, it's just a really big hole in the small business ecosystem uh, today. And not only are you more likely to save for retirement, the way the rules work, you're allowed to save even more because you can contribute to a 401k a lot more money than you can contribute to an IRA. So it's a double benefit for people working at big companies and a double damage for people working at smaller companies. I mean, the game is just it's not a level playing field. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I would add one more thing on that, which is, you know, with the typical 401k plan, you know, most employers choose to match. I mean, take the the typical guideline plan, which is, you know, mostly small businesses, even there, a typical employer matches three to 4% of the employer's or employee's compensation. So it's, it's a big difference, not just sort of three times the contribution limit between a 401k and an IRA, but also the expectation that the employer will help you 
you know, saved by, by doing a match. So a solution to this, uh, since states are as worried about it as the federal government, many states are beginning to develop legislation that says if the employer doesn't offer a 401k, we're going to create a state-run IRA program, and we're going to force all small employers to enroll their employees in it. Talk about these auto IRA programs. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's really interesting because there's over 20 states, probably pushing towards about 30 states that are in some phase of either starting the program, looking at passing legislation, or doing kind of research on what it would mean for their state. Um, the three states that are furthest ahead are Oregon, California, and Illinois. Um, Oregon is the only one that's fully rolled out. And typical uh, for each of these programs is they basically require a mandate or have a mandate for um, you know, small employers typically with five or more full-time employees, you know, to offer a 401k plan to their, um, or a qualified plan to their employees. And if they don't want to do that, they can potentially use, you know, what you said, a Roth IRA, an auto IRA program administered through the state um, that has both auto uh, enrollment and auto escalation. So you're exactly right, which is, you know, the state treasurers have been looking at this. They're concerned about seeing the first wave of the baby boomers retiring and finding them underprepared for retirement. And what that means is a lot of those uh, costs end up potentially with the county health systems or the state. Um, and they're looking at that and saying, you know, we got to step in and do something. And, and this is their approach. They've taken a, a mandate for small employers. And then alongside that, a potential offering if, you know, the employers don't feel like they can get a, a can afford or set up a full 401k plan. And so you've got 50 states coming up with 50 programs. It's real mess out there. But now suddenly the federal government is stepping in with a proposal of its own. And that is what's been embedded into the Build Back Better Act. Talk about the federal program. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think there is a fair bit of concern of if I'm sure you've talked about 529 plans uh, on your program before the the, uh, state programs for college education savings. Sure. And I think a lot of people have looked at state programs but, hey, let, let's not necessarily do that all over again. Um, is there a way for the federal government potentially to step in and create a little bit more uniform program, which also could help employers that have, you know, employees across state lines? Um, they don't want to be administrating multiple different kind of programs. Um, so you're exactly right, which is with <laughs> buried within this uh, sort of massive potential legislation with the, the budget reconciliation and the Build Back Better bill um, is this sort of pretty massive uh, retirement, um, you know, proposal. And so what it does, it has a very similar mandate, but at a federal level. So it's five or more employees uh, that need to get a retirement plan. What's different with the federal, uh, potential federal program versus the, the state programs that are, are already out or rolling out is uh, the federal program does not come also with a potential product. So what they're saying is uh, administered by the, the federal government. So what they're saying is Hey, you, you should be able to find, and we believe there are products in the private market that will either exist today or will be developed quickly um, that will help you meet those needs. Now, your company, Guideline, provides 401ks to small business. So do we here at Edelman Financial Engines. But is this a competitive threat? No, I think quite the opposite. In fact, I, I testified in a hearing in front of uh, the Pennsylvania State Treasurer a couple of years ago uh, in the kind of committee that was looking at it, a uh, bipartisan committee in Pennsylvania that was looking at a potential program at the state level. He asked me the exact same question. What I said is, no, you know, the, the problem is so sizable, and going back to those numbers we mentioned earlier, um, you, you kind of need to come at it multiple different different ways. And so we look at it as, 
Hey, mandate actually really forces the small businesses to grapple with this. And it is one more thing for them to take on, but it, it's also really, really important to their workers. And, you know, it's important for the small businesses to be able to compete for talent in a really competitive uh, and kind of disrupted labor market. So, um, no, we don't, we don't see it as competitive. We actually think it will encourage small businesses to, to move forward that are kind of not, not taking steps today. And in our case, 90% of our clients are setting up new 401k plans today. So it's really a question of like, do they do it this year? Do they do it next year? Um, you know, kind of that motivation of like, hey, do they have time to do this? How important is it to that point? Get going on. And so we, we share your view, and, and that's why we're, we're excited about the prospect that Congress will pass this legislation, make it easier for all American workers to save for retirement, no matter where they're working. We'll see if, in fact, it does get included in the final legislation. Jeff, I know you're working on this at Guideline very heavily, along with uh, your partnership in the Funding Our Future Coalition. We're thrilled that you're a member of the coalition. And uh, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Great. Thank you, Rick. That was Jeff Rosenberger, the COO of Guideline, a retirement platform for small businesses and a member of the Funding Our Future Coalition. You can learn more about the coalition at fundingourfuture.us. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Or visit online at rickedelman.com. Free articles on personal finance. Sign up for Rick's email update at rickedelman.com. Let's go to the telephones here on the Rick Edelman Show. Off to Sutton, Massachusetts. Jeff is with us on the air. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, good morning, Rick, and thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. I've been a long-time listener. I've been very impressed with your holistic approach towards financial management, and I've actually reached out a couple of times to your colleagues at Edelman. But the main barrier that's prevented me from joining the uh, club, so to speak, is the uh, potential capital gains tax bite. If I sold my shares at T. Rowe and then moved them to Edelman Financial Services or Investing. However, I recently came upon a concept called transfer in kind, which seems on the surface would allow me to transfer my funds directly to Edelman without this tax bite. And I was wondering if you could clarify whether this would be apropos to my situation. About 90% of my funds in T. Rowe are taxable. So appreciate any comments and thanks. Thank you very much, Jeff, for your kind comments and, and your interest in, in willingness to become a client of, of Edelman Financial Engines. I, I'm very grateful for that. As you noted, a potentially big stumbling block is the cost of becoming a client. And the cost, as you said, are taxes. You have money and investments elsewhere. And if you transfer that money over to us, uh, you're going to have to sell those assets, triggering capital gains and the tax liability that goes along with it. Uh, and that is an expense that is unavoidable. It's possible, as you noted, to transfer in kind, meaning you don't sell your securities. You just move those shares to us. And that way, by not selling the shares, you don't incur the tax. But it doesn't work as a practical matter for the simple reason that if you transfer the shares to us, 
we're going to sell the shares. <laughs> and sometimes clients do that. They transfer shares instead of cash, and we just sell out the shares, incurring the tax liability. Why do we do that? Why do we liquidate your shares? It's because you're hiring us to manage your money. And we manage money in a certain way. We use certain investments, mutual funds and exchange traded funds in our case. And we are going to construct for you an investment portfolio based on our money management acumen. So that's why you're hiring us. So we don't care about the investment you own. If by some strange coincidence, you do own some funds that are the same as the funds we would use, then sure, we will transfer them in kind to avoid the tax liability. But we usually discover that isn't the case. The client owns other stuff, or even if they own the same funds, they don't own them in the right combination. So we'll still end up buying or selling some of those shares uh, anyway. So uh, you're going to incur this. And that's not just an Edelman thing. That's an everywhere thing. Most financial advisors operate the same way because the reason you're hiring the advisor is for them to manage the money. If you want them to merely hold your securities that you already have, then why are you bringing the, the shares to us? Why do you want us to charge you a fee if we're not going to be managing the money, if all we're going to do is hold on to it on your behalf? So it doesn't do you any good to transfer your existing assets to us. You're not getting any value from our services. You're paying our fee for no reason. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So you need to decide. You need to answer that question. And it's a key question. Do you realize the tax liability for becoming our client we can help give you an estimate of what that cost will be. Are you willing to incur that cost? And you have to simply evaluate, is it worthwhile? Now, sometimes it's not. I'll give you an example. Uh, a client who's 90 years old, and he, uh, based on his health, he expects that he has a few years to live. He owns stock that he has had for decades. He used to work for the employer where he retired 30 years ago. So he accumulated this stock over the working course of his career. And as you can imagine, his cost basis is very, very low. If he were to sell that stock, he would incur a massive capital gain. But he knows that upon his death, that capital gain goes away. His children will inherit all of that money completely free of capital gains tax. Well, he and I had a real big problem justifying his selling those assets, incurring the tax to move it over to us. It, it was hard to justify because of the amazing amount of taxes he'll incur compared to waiting a few years uh, heaven forbid, but we know it's inevitable, waiting a few years and letting his children get the money tax-free. So that was an example where it didn't make sense for him to become a client. I'll give you another case. A client was very happy where their money was being managed. They felt that the returns they were earning in the account were pretty much the same as the returns that they would expect to get from us. So why bother make the change? But I'll give you another case. A married couple where they are together in their early 50s. They had investments that were okay, but not particularly uh, great in terms of their past performance. They had a high concentration of money in a very few number of investment categories, uh, meaning they were over-concentrated. They were taking big risks relative to the returns they were getting. They were also paying a lot of money for the mutual funds they owned. Not only were they concentrated, they were expensive. And we think we could lower their annual costs. We could reduce their portfolio risks. We could 
match and probably exceed the returns they were getting or reasonably could expect to get. And as for the taxes they'd incur to move the money to us to make all that happen, well, they're going to pay that tax sooner or later. So it's not like they're in their 90s and they could avoid the tax by conveniently dying. You know, they were, they're going to sell the assets at some point, And when they do, they're going to pay the tax. And oh, by the way, the Democrats are right now proposing a dramatic increase in the capital gains tax. So better to sell it now at the lower capital gains rate than waiting for the next several years and pay a higher tax later. So in that case, it made perfect sense for them to grin and bear it, bite the bullet, you know, just sell the assets, incur the tax, and move on. And so that's the answer you need to reach in your case, Jeff. Is it worthwhile to pay the tax? Since the tax is inevitable anyway, it's not that you can choose whether to pay the tax. You can only choose when to pay the tax. You want to pay it now at 20%? Or do you want to wait until after the new tax bill goes into effect and the tax is 25%? Your choice. Well, that's very helpful, Rick. It's interesting you said that your colleagues can estimate that tax liability. So maybe the next step would be speak with them and then they can help me with that. Is that correct? Absolutely right. We can make it very practical. We'll give you an estimate of what your tax liability will be to become our client so that you have a number in hand and that will help you decide. In fact, what you may decide to do is move a little bit of it. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing question. You might sell some of your holdings and move them over. And then next year, a little bit more. The year after that, a little bit more. So you might choose to do it in tranches as opposed to doing it all at once. So uh, we'll help you work through that to help you minimize the tax as best as possible and to maximize the effectiveness of the effort. We're a fiduciary, so we have an obligation to making sure that what you're doing is in your best interest. And if it's not in your best interest to incur that tax, we're going to tell you. Well, that's great. So I guess next step, get a hold of one of your colleagues again and speak to them. Jeff, that's a great idea. Great. So there's no question that when you're trying to decide whether or not you should hire a new financial advisor, you've got to take into consideration two things. Number one, the expenses. And I don't just mean the expenses of the advisor's fee or the expenses of the investments the advisor recommends. I also mean the tax cost of having to make the transition. All of that matters. And you've got to balance all of that against the services that you're going to get from the advisor. If the advisor is only offering investments, well, then it's just a straight apples-to-apples comparison. But if the advisor is also offering additional services beyond just investments, insurance, taxes, mortgages, uh, state planning, college planning, employee benefits, and, and so on, well, all of that gets taken into consideration so that you can make the decision that's best for you. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks for the time. Jeff, I appreciate your phone call. Thanks so much. That was Jeff in Sutton, Massachusetts, here on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-REC- rickedelman.com More with the author of the New York Times bestseller Discover the Wealth Within You coming up on the Rick Edelman Show
Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here, Triple H Plan Rick. That's rickedelman.com. You know, we invite you to send in your question with an audio clip. Just record your own voice on your smartphone and send the audio file to me via email. Send it to askrick at rickedelman.com. John did that. Here's his question. Hi, Rick. John from Fenwick Island, Delaware. Long-time listener and reader, second time asking a question. I have three many questions linked to Social Security, and I'm basically asking you for your opinion or predictions. My wife was born in 1960, which of course she now has to contend with the Social Security glitch that everyone born that year has a problem with. Any word if that will be addressed? And now, with the trust fund problems, waiting until she's 70 in 2030, coupled with the glitch and another possible 22% reduction in benefits in 2033, those together would amount to over a thousand dollars a month less. What projections should we use in our planning? And with all of these benefit cuts, what are the chances of them increasing the IRA contribution limits significantly up from our seven thousand dollars a year? John, three great questions, uh, and I'm afraid you're not going to like any of the answers. The glitch that you refer to is permanent. There is nothing that Congress is going to do about it. Quite frankly, there's nothing that Congress can do about it because it's a mathematical conundrum. The glitch that John is referring to, we've talked about previously on the show, due to a glitch, that's really the technical term for it, in the way the Social Security calculations are done when determining what your monthly benefit is, If you're born in the year 1960, due to the way the calculations work, you're going to get about a 9% decline in benefits. There's nothing you can do about this. It applies only to people born in the year 1960. For Congress to try to fix it, all they would do is shift this to becoming the problem of those born in the year 1961. In other words, life isn't fair sometimes, and those born in 1960... Well, yeah, it's unfair, but it's the way it is. So your wife is stuck with that reduction. And as we've been talking about a lot on the program, Congress is also dealing with the issue that the Social Security Trust Fund is being depleted. And by 2033, as you noted, benefits are going to be cut 24% if Congress takes no action. So we don't know what the action Congress is going to take, if any. So for planning purposes, to answer your question, I would calculate the worst case scenario. You say your wife's going to projectedly get $1,000 a month less. That's what you should assume. That way, if you can pull that off, you're in good shape. If it turns out to be not so bad, so much the good. But you need to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And will Congress make life easier for you in other ways, such as expanding the amount you can contribute to an IRA on a tax-deductible basis? Absolutely not. Think about it. Congress is struggling with massive problems here. This is why they're trying to raise $3.5 trillion in new taxes to pay for the stuff they've already got to pay for. The last thing Congress wants to do is give you more ways to reduce your taxes. So forget about it. There's no way that Congress, in my mind, is going to make it easier for you to contribute even more to an IRA, especially when we go beyond the economic issue of this. Look at the political issue. Who are the people who are generally contributing to IRAs? Rich people. I'm sorry, John. Congress, in their opinion, calls you rich because you are affluent enough to afford to contribute more than $7,000 a year to your IRA. The average U.S. household is making about $44,000 a year. They're living paycheck to paycheck. 
they don't have the money to contribute to an IRA at all. So to expand the IRA eligibility rule or the deductibility rule, all they would be doing is giving a bigger benefit to rich people. Congress is going after rich people right now. The House bill has been targeting those with higher incomes and higher net worths, going after the deductions they get, increasing the taxes on income, increasing the taxes on capital gains. No, my friend, I do not think you can expect an improvement in the ability for you to deduct contributions to your IRA. I appreciate your uh, call and question, but uh, as I warned you, you weren't going to like the answers that I gave you. You can do what John did. Send your question to askrick at rickedelman.com. Time now for everyone's favorite segment of the week, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman. Jean, of course, uh, founder here at Edelman Financial Engines, expert in macrobiotic cooking, degree in nutrition, and consumer economics, bringing us the other side of money every week. Hello. It is so good to be with you this week. I had a really fun day yesterday. I got a chance to speak to almost 200 people at Rowan University via a WebEx for their Alliance Network. And um, I had Jean's top 10. So I thought I would share that with you. So here we go. Number one of my top 10 is find your why. When you have your why, you know what matters to you so you can make fulfilling choices that enrich your life. Number two is define needs versus wants. This was very important to Rick and I in the beginning when um, we didn't have any money and we had a lot of debt. So for defining your needs versus wants, we spend money mindlessly. And we don't think about it. In today's age, everything is instant. You can order something. It could be on your porch later this afternoon. And so before spending, think about the purchase and whether you really need to incur that expense or if you just merely want it. And instead of spending mindlessly, save for what's truly important. Number three is don't be afraid to fail. Failure is our greatest teacher. When we fail, we learn, and that helps us grow and improve. The only way to avoid failing is to avoid making decisions, and that's not living. That's being stagnant. Life is all about moving forward. So don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make decisions. It's very, very healthy for fulfilling life. Number four is Find your personal truths and your voice. We are all connected to each other, and we must respect each other and communicate in a positive, productive manner. Number five is stay positive. Practice stress reduction techniques. There's yoga, there's tai chi, there's qigong. Walk outside and find quiet. We've got to be able to process life and all our trials and tribulations in order to stay positive and stay healthy. Number six is embrace change. Life is change. If we're not changing, we're not living. Change is healthy. The seasons changed. We change as we age. Having a good, healthy understanding of all the changes that come in life help keep us fresh and open-minded. Number seven Find tools to help us process life. We are constantly facing and overcoming challenges, but we need to have a good toolbox 
to help us process. So I've talked many times about writing in a journal, talking with a trusted person, finding a professional, a counselor or clergy, someone that can help us heal our wounds so that we can focus and have a wonderful, happy life and not be stuck. Number eight, practice good self-care. We need to set time aside in our day for ourselves. One, we need to block time to eat. Are we drinking water during the day? Are we getting our walks outside? Maybe we just need to sit quietly with a cup of tea and process our thoughts. It's very important to rest and restore. Be selfish with your time. Being busy is not the goal. Being is the goal. Being here and present in the moment. Number nine, our health is cumulative. We don't think about that in our teens and 20s and 30s, but as we get to our 40s, 50s, and 60s and beyond, we remember, oh my gosh, what did I do? So we need to understand that what we expose our body to today affects our health tomorrow. What we eat today, how we eat today affects our health tomorrow. How we manage stress. Are we getting good sleep All of these little pieces add to good, good health. We need to be proactive and preventative. And number 10 is find joy. Laugh, be in the moment, make memories, show kindness, express gratitude, give to others, and be kind to animals. So that was my top 10. And then, of course, I ended with wabi-sabi, which is nothing's perfect, nothing's complete, And nothing is permanent. I think that keeps it all in perspective. I hope you have a wonderful week. The season is changing. If you're in the Northeast, it's getting a little cooler. It feels good to be outside. So enjoy. That was Gene Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show. And that top 10 list, it's available as a PDF. So if you would like to download a copy of what Gene just talked about, you can get it for free at rickedelman.com. And our full podcast has more topics and stories, including the latest about the stock market. Should you be optimistic or cautious? Listen to it all on this week's podcast at rickedelman.com. See you next week. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.